Well, shall we shall we get cracking? Um, quite, uh, I guess everyone's become an expert on uh, on transfer, uh, well, on contracts and and what you can and can't do in a in a transfer in the last couple of days. So, obviously, chatting about Harry Kane. Um, yeah, keen to keen to get your view on the whole situation as as an external party and the and the various discussions around what can and can't be agreed in a contract and, and frankly what may or may not be a gentleman's agreement. Yeah, there's lots of questions with Kane. And to to be fair, I think um you know, we're not the we're not the ones that um, are going to say the two controversial things. In part because you know, there's always so many different parts to the the pie and uh, different um, you know competing interests generally. And also because I think we've got lots of cool stuff to talk about on the transfer window numbers and talking about why spending has dropped. But you know, obviously because Kane is is um, headline news at the moment. You know, some of the things that that come up generally um, when we're talking about contracts. Um, players moving, player power, club power, um, leverage, um, you know, all of those things need to be put into the, um, uh, into the hat in truth because, you know, Kane signs a you know, six-year deal in 2018 that obviously gives him financial security. It puts him on a huge amount of money. Everyone's happy because you're at peak Pochettino years, really, and you think there's going to be a very successful trajectory for him as captain and, and the club. Things obviously don't go to plan to the same degree, um, and then effectively, you know, a few years on, um, there's still three years left on a deal. Um, club is in a strong position, um, and then players, as has happened in the past with Spurs and at other clubs, you know, it's Tevez, Suarez, Bale, Modric, Berbatov. You know, you can you can roll off tons of players that have effectively tried to. Um, um, leave um, clubs because they want to move on for for a variety of different reasons. Um, you know the the things that can be in employment contracts which makes things easier are release clauses, etc. But in the absence of particular release clauses or buyout numbers, um, then it becomes a game of cat and mouse where um, you know there is strength in particular positions. And at the moment, Spurs are obviously in a strong position because they can hold um, Kane to his contract. But in the end, the truth is just you know and I'm not involved in any of any of this, is, you know, usually when a player and a high-profile player um, really wants to leave, ultimately, although it might not be in this window or otherwise, in the, in the medium term, usually the player does um, leave unless, you know, it might well be the case that Spurs suddenly go on a great run and then suddenly glory and success comes quicker. But ultimately, you know, players to a degree have that... Um, uh, have have the wherewithal along with their agents and advisors that you know clubs know that they don't in the lo- the medium to long term want to want to keep unhappy players. So um, yeah, on on that note, I mean, I think obviously we'll see how it plays out in the next time, and it's obviously going to like likely go down to the wire because as a, a lot of people know and is reported, Daniel Levy is you know a very nuanced n- negotiator and is going to if so um, try and get and extract maximum value if they if he thinks it appropriate so you know bearing in mind the Kane situation if I if I put it back onto you Omar obviously you know regardless of if that or a Grealish move happens which will obviously add significant amounts to the the bottom lines for um, uh, the the total amounts being spent in the window could you give us a bit of a you know some background as to you know has spending dropped and how much has spending dropped? How dramatic has it has it actually been from the from the current state of play we find ourselves in? Yeah, there's been definitely a 
a big drop in in spending in the window so far. So if you look at um, spending in July uh, 2021, so obviously the first kind of full month of the window um, in the Premier League and Championship, um, it's at levels that are probably comparable to 2013, so roughly eight years ago. Um, and compared to pre-pandemic, it's more than halved. Um, so you used to have about uh, kind of 1.1, 1. 1.2 gross spending in July um, by Premier League and Championship clubs. Uh, so far this window, we're at 0.4 billion, so oh, 0.5 billion, so about 500 million. Um, so there's been a massive, massive drop um, this season. And obviously last season we didn't have a July period in the transfer window that the season was essentially being completed in July so this is the first kind of normal season that we have to compare to pre-pandemic levels um, kind of data obviously from last season's window just not the same point in time and I think what the most kind of interesting thing was that the value of top players pretty much held up so if you look at essentially the number of players being transferred for 15 plus million euros, it was pretty much the same as what it had been in previous years. The, the major change in the market was at the lower end of the market, particularly those players between 0 and 5 million um, euros, but even 5 to 10 million euros as well. There was a, there was a significant drop off in uh, the amount of players being transacted for those, those values. And I suspect we'll end up seeing the same again. So, you know, we're talking about the likes of Kane and Grealish, and these are players at the top end of the market. And I don't think, you know, I think the, the fees that they would sell for would be pretty much in line with what we would have seen uh, pre-pandemic levels. Um, but I think for a lot of clubs, again, I mean, we spoke about this before, but I think for a lot of clubs, their squad players, and particularly clubs, you know, in the Championship, maybe right at the bottom of the Premier League, uh, who are looking to shift players for a, for a few million pounds here and there, I think it's going to be a real struggle this window. And that, that obviously has knock-on effects for clubs' ability to, to spend as well. So, yeah, it's, um, I think speaking to people at clubs has been a, a real challenge selling players as ever in this window. And there's going to be a bit of a, bit of a well, there has been a bit of a realignment, I think, in the transfer window. It'll be really interesting to see if it kind of corrects itself in the future. Um, just just on, the, on the Kane situation, I wanted to ask... Um, you mentioned obviously there was the the six year deal signed in 2018. This 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 is me kind of it may just be a complete fallacy or something, but my understanding around contracts um, is normally there they kind of go up to five years. What 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 are the options that players have in terms of signing really long contracts? I obviously understand why players may choose not to do that. So only why clubs might, may choose not to do that. But there are circumstances you see where players have got six or even longer term deals. How? How feasible is that for, for players and clubs? The truth is, is that, um, you know, to an extent, I actually thought that uh, the, the, the longest under the, the FIFA regs was five years. Um, now, whether there is national uh, legislation that can provide for longer term fixed contracts of um, longer duration... The thing I would say is that what happens with a lot of the, the top clubs throughout Europe as well is sometimes there can be five plus. So um, as I think it's reported for Pogba and a lot of the Man United players, which is relatively standard, is that United, I believe, put um, uh, unilateral option um, clauses in that enable the, the club unilaterally to be able to um, more or less, um, uh, inf not enforce, but to be able to provide for that option um, more or less, I guess, to safeguard the value of um, player values at particular times too. So what I would sometimes say is it might, it might be a five plus a couple of uh, option years that are unilaterally available um, by the, by the, uh, to be elected by the club 
I think also at the same time, you know, um, sometimes uh, being able to be able to put a, a very long term deal um, on the table does provide that security. You know, I know that will only happen usually for a lot of the elite players because clubs want to tie them in and the, the players at that particular point are really happy at the club, etc. But, you know, six year, I think maybe it's a bit of data research from you got your team, but I think that's very much the outlier position and I don't see that very often at all, um, um, if at all, really. So, yeah, very much the outlier. And if I can... Uh-huh. Yeah, sorry, go on. I'm sorry, I was going to say, from a negotiation standpoint, mm. presumably a club says to a player... We, we want to lock you down. We want to keep you at the club for, for a number of years because you're a super valuable player to us. Um, and if you agree to a longer term deal, we will essentially pay you more each year. Because I'm trying to think of a circumstance where you are a super valuable player to a club and presumably it is in your interest to have a slightly shorter term deal so that you are have a stronger negotiating position. But the trade-off is perhaps you don't get as much salary in that in that short-term contract. Is that generally how it tends to work? I think there are so many of those levers depending on particular scenarios and circumstances. So I completely agree. You, logic would dictate that um, if a club was offering a five or six-year deal, but you wanted to retain a position and only go for three or a three-and-a-half deal, for example, depending on when it was negotiated, the club would say, well no we want you a longer deal and if everyone is really insistent on a shorter deal then it might come as that opportunity cost trade-off so I think you're totally right um, I think if um, you know a club wants to secure long-term asset then they might have to pay a little bit more for the privilege now in practice it's just one of those extra levers um, it might be um, that it means greater signing on fees loyalty bonuses particular um, you know um, other types of bonuses that, that may, may be activated throughout the term. It might not even be the case, Omar, as you said, that, that it actually uh, increases over a particular duration. It might just be that, you know, the player knows that they're getting, you know, a real bumper amount based on the, the, the longevity of the contract rather than actual increases, though I think it's like that if they play well and they win, that player wins and plays well and is participating in lots of the games, there'll be almost certainly automatic uplifts based on particular appearances or goals or progress or whatever else it might be yeah and I know one of the levers that uh, I know a lot of clubs that don't want to kind of pay a huge basic salary to, to players um, you know because the, the knock-on effects that has for other players wanting to kind of get on uh, on a similar salary um, to, to other players in the squad so having those ratchets through through bonuses and loyalties and signing fees and so on makes a lot of sense so it's the the basic salary doesn't look as as aggressive as it were for, yeah for the- exactly and I think I think going you know going from that point as well Omar to one of the points we discussed pre-call pre-session now was you know at what point from a, a transfer fee perspective does um, those expiry dates lead to diminishing or sort of impacting on the values of those transfer fees. So, you know, we know Kane has three years left, which obviously puts um, more of the bargaining and leverage power in the, in the club's hands. If this was again to happen next year and Kane was still at Spurs, then obviously Spurs are not in you know the a stronger position with Kane having two years left on his deal. I know you've crunched some of the numbers and given this some thought as well. Where where do you stand on, or where does the the numbers and the data stand on? You know, at what point do does that those values start to really diminish? 
Yeah, so it, it can be, it can vary quite a lot. I mean, in some cases, you see players sold for the value that we would have for them anyway, even if um, um, you know they weren't didn't have an expiring contract. Um, and I think that that can just be a circumstance of there being competition in the marketplace for players, um, and you end up not um, having to, to kind of take a hit on the player. Um, but but if we if we look at it as a kind of generalised example, what we've seen if you, if you take a player's market value in kind of most in the typical market, if they've got a year left on their deal, we tend to see that the average player is essentially getting sold for about twenty percent less compared to their market value. Um, so a reasonable hit, but not it's not kind of you know crippling um, decrease, right? A twenty percent hit. So I don't know if you're a a fifty million pound player. Um, that's a, a ten million pound hit. So it's, it's it's reasonable, but it's not. Um, you know, it's not going from fifty to twenty five, which I think sometimes is, is the perception. And, and I think that's partly because when you have a player who's left with a year left on their deal, there are going to be more buyers in the marketplace for that type of player because they will see the opportunity to get a discount. And it's kind of a bit of a paradox in some ways where a lot of people wanting a discount means that there isn't as big a discount, as it were. So I think there's a bit of that going on in the marketplace with uh, with players. Obviously, as it gets to six months and so on, then it can get it can get a bit more. Uh, but then at the other end of the scale, if you're looking at players who have three or four years left on the deal, we tend to see almost the inverse, so roughly 20 to 25% uplift on their market value compared to, again, your kind of base case for a player. Um, so that's, you know, the situation that... Um, you know these players like Kane and, and Greenwich find themselves in at the moment, where they are, you know, locked in long-term deals, and clubs do have to pay a premium to get them out of their their contracts. Um, so yeah, it's um, it's a real game of cat and mouse. I think we've discussed before. You know, why is it that more players don't um, go for shorter deals and try and run down their contracts a bit more? Because clearly, particularly post-COVID, some of these fees are going to be prohibitive to a, to a lot of clubs. Um, but I think you know the, the the desire to have that security, and also in the context of what we just spoke about, the, the possibility of essentially having a higher salary over a longer term contract means that they end up signing these longer term deals and then find themselves in, in this type of bind. And I think something to add to that, which we've talked about previously, is you know as much as uh, again you have that almost paradox where the, the top players perhaps want greater flexibility because of their longer term value and lower league players want the security of longer deals and usually clubs will give the the former what they want i.e. I try and tie them into longer term deals and obviously lower clubs lower league clubs will try and provide the flexibility by not giving longer term deals for the exact inverse reasons so what, what also happens you know I think from the elite player club side of things is from a player's perspective obviously there's going to be players that are going to be um, you know winding down their contracts for a variety of different reasons usually because it obviously gives them maximum options and maximum commercial viability but you know those things we've talked about previously like you know the risk of long-term injury which to a degree can be cured in the short term by insurance and other things and you know loss of form in truth as well can be a a major a potentially major force and you know and also you shouldn't discount the fact that obviously with Qatar it's slightly different with the timing of things but usually when you go into the um the 
the, the, the springs and summers of international tournaments, those players want to be playing in order to you know, effectively finalise their place in those squads. And we've seen plenty of instances over the years where players might be winding down their contracts for the, the usual reason of trying to get those best deals, but it might impact on their ability to get into their national team because they're probably not playing as much and then the coach doesn't see them the short-term future of, um, of them being in the squad. So, yeah, lots of lots of interesting sort of options and variables that are always you know maybe le- given less visibility or less context in the market yeah absolutely for, for sure um, um, one of the things we spoke about was um, the, we've kind of touched on before is this concept of like how um, sticky the, the market for wages is particularly compared to, to transfer fees Um so we looked at, again, looked at some of the numbers here. So I mentioned earlier, you know, transfer fees in July have basically fallen to 2013 levels. So they've reacted, they've probably overreacted in some respects to the pandemic in terms of the, the loss of revenues. Um, but, but, you know, if you're comparing, I don't know, 2015 to 2021, the actual value of spending has, has gone down in that period of time. Um, but if you're comparing wages from 2015 to 2019 or 2020 you know the latest available figures they've grown about 61 percent in that time and obviously you sign a deal and then you know a lot of players would have signed deals just pre-pandemic and are now on these salaries for for a longer period of time and i think that's probably causing you tell me dan from from some of your experience that's probably causing a lot of the headaches that that clubs have at the moment in terms of being able to manage their costs um, is that is that the, you have these wages that are at pre-pandemic levels and very difficult to flex up and down. Well, it's a great one, and it's you know something that I think is um, uh, not not hasn't necessarily been looked at in huge detail, apart from obviously the work that you've done as well, Omar. Which is, you know, that stickiness revolves in different ways. It's almost like, um, you know, the ability for a good. Premier League player to be able to find a new club um, is hugely limited potentially because I think to a degree, you know, that because probably their the wages that they were on was based on pre-pandemic values, where where I feel transfer fees have gone, which is you know transfer fee has basically a lot they they real the transfer fee and the value of transfers whatever they may be has all automatically realigns dependent on you know, uh, open buyer and open seller and usually a relatively open market. Um, What's happened, I guess, is that there's always that lag, that contract lag to a degree because, you know, there's longer term contracts, the value pre and post COVID is obviously very different. And, you know, everyone's expectations generally is always upwards. Um, So again, the thing that I found fascinating, it was announced today, Omar, you'd have probably seen is, Fabiano signed an extension to his Liverpool deal. Trent Arnold has relatively recently as well. And obviously they are very protectable assets from Liverpool, but they've obviously had to put those players, those elite players into new, more lucrative um, um, categories um, on based on their wage structure. And I think the important thing to sort of note there to a degree is, you know, clubs need to very much balance their expenditure based on fine transfer fees and wages but also either upgrading the current contractual status of players or effectively downgrading by not prioritizing them in contractual negotiations at a particular time which 
sounds like in for example Jordan Henderson's case is potentially leading to a bit of a contractual standoff so what I really am interested in, and I know you do a lot of work on it as well, is not only how the transfer system um, and the transfer market is basically playing out, but also about how that wage, whatever the word is, um, rebalancing is actually occurring from pre-pandemic values to now post and the sort of recovery of those values, but probably not to the same extent as they were, um, you know, um, pre-pandemic level yeah it is it is really interesting and i think you can see you know if you look at the accounts of clubs where they release their wage spending which admittedly includes staff but kind of gives an indication of how much they spend on on players and obviously compare that to transfer fees which are generally widely reported and you can see that there's variations in strategies by different clubs and and those strategies obviously implemented pre-covid and they have knock-on effects post-covid so you mentioned liverpool liverpool I think it's gone a little bit under the radar how much they've invested in in salaries. They, I think, I'm right in saying in in 1920 um, were the second highest spenders on salary in, in the league. Yes, there'll be a big chunk of that. That's because they won the league, and I'm sure they had massive bonuses um, that were related to that. But even then, their wage bill had been rising a lot year on year. Um, you know, under under the last under Klopp's success really um, and the club hasn't spent they've, they've spent a couple of massive transfer fees but I don't think they've been right at the top of the table in terms of um, gross spending each year I think the likes of Chelsea City and, and United have clipped them in that eclipsed them in that respect so Liverpool have gone down a very kind of wage more wage heavy approach if you like whereas a club like I think Brighton um, have probably gone more heavy on transfer fees uh, from players from smaller markets so they've bought a lot from um, Belgium and uh, Netherlands and also uh, you know even France the, the players are paid less there um, and so their strategy has been much more well let's recruit players who are on lower salaries in the first place so they might be earning you know I don't know 15 20 25k a week in in whatever country uh, and so they only need to do a certain increase in their salary once they once they bring them over, it's not like you're bringing over a player from Serie A who's already on, you know, 50, 60k a week. Um, and so, you know, only having limited uplift in salary and, and being prepared to pay a fair bit in transfer fee, almost like a redistribution to to clubs in Netherlands, Belgium, France and, and so on. Um, accepting on the basis that I think they the rationale for taking that approach is that you are then able to sell it's potentially a bit easier to loan out and sell players because they aren't on ridiculous salaries and, and you're prepared to take a little bit of a hit on on the transfer fees and obviously you can kind of work it all out in terms of the the accounting practices as well um and and but no no one was going to predict the pandemic um two years ago but of those two approaches i think you're probably slightly happier if you took the approach of having slightly more um, slightly lower wages, maybe a bit more flexibility on your wages, um, because as you say, the transfer market has, I think, generally, or to a degree, recalibrated. I don't, I don't think it's fully there. I think there is a lot um, that needs to be worked out at the bottom end of the market. Um, but generally, um, that top end of the market seems to have sorted itself out, and there'll be a lot of players that clubs are kind of stuck with and committed to now for for a period of time. That um, yeah, probably hoping they didn't spend as much money on you know 18 months 24 months ago i also wondered just very briefly omar and we'll we'll sort of yeah we've got a few few minutes left but 
you know, it's it's almost like that without you again using too many Liverpool examples. It's almost that sort of Jota um, transfer, which is you know relatively high transfer fee for a player, but not in supposedly as reported, not in the higher way, the highest or higher wage brackets, so that ultimately you can amortize transfer fee over the five years and then you know his his you know weekly salary isn't amongst anywhere near the highest earners so you almost de-risk to a degree um and that's almost exactly what you're sort of pointing to which is you know you can you know obviously high transfer fee with high profile player means high transfer fee and very high wages what it looks like liverpool are, are doing have done to a degree in the past is don't mind necessarily paying higher wages as long as it's amortized and installments are put in certain ways um, but ultimately then the player's got to prove himself on the pitch before he's going to get into those higher wage brackets for and obviously for performance related stuff that makes a lot of sense yeah yeah and I think um, the, the sophistication with clubs think about this has definitely um, changed in the last I, I've noticed a shift in the last kind of four or five years I think there's there's definitely a bit more a lot more thought given to it now and, and a lot less generally a lot less panic buying I think we used to look at we used to do stats you know when I joined 21st group uh, was seven years ago now in the first few transfer windows where I was involved in the business you could you know push out all kinds of numbers around the the amount of premium that clubs were paying towards the back end of the window and the amount of spending there was on the last day and the kind of the sense of panic you could you know actually physically measure um, within the transfer market, but I, I think that's really not as much the case now. And that's not to say all decision making is is efficient by any stretch, but I think there is a bit more um, uh, sensibleness, for want of a better phrase, now, and, and a lot more thought considered to, to wage structures. No, totally agree. And so, um, yeah, I just wondered whether just for the last couple of minutes, and maybe it's uh, just in uh, connection with. You know, a session we can do next week or the week after. There was one other thing, unless Omar, there was anything else you wanted to chat about on no, no. Um, on the window, which was you know just by way of sort of um, news today, which has just sort of fallen below the radar a little bit. Which is the the Premier League have announced that the government have accepted their um, proposal for the rolling over of the domestic five billion pounds br- three year broadcasting deal. So that Sky, Amazon, and um, uh, Sky, Amazon, and BT um, will retain the same rights for a further three years, and I just wonder. We were just talking briefly, and it'd be interesting your comments briefly, Omar, would whether then uh, that comfort and stability um, actually perhaps um, you know provides a bit more bullishness in the. The, the remaining window knowing that you know the best part of 1.7 1.8 billion is going to be d- just a, from domestic re- uh, broadcasting revenues is going to be di- distributed um that will obviously make um you know ev- i guess the financial directors of the the premier league clubs um sleep a bit easier um um tonight yeah i, I think that's probably true um i think there obviously is uncertainties around yeah there there's the comfort of being in the Premier League which you could argue there are like eight to ten clubs who, who can feel pretty confident about their longer term Premier League um, prospects but then there's the other ten to fourteen or so clubs who um, who are a bit more worried about dropping to, to the Championship and I suppose that's that's still quite a big unknown as to what happens 
uh, in that league and, and the, the fate for, for clubs in that league going forward. So I, I think it I think it provides, um, relatively speaking, provides comfort for English clubs compared to, I mean, if you look at France at the moment, you know, the obvious case, but even the, the other big five leagues, um, it provides a bit more comfort for those those clubs. But I just don't, I think everyone's been so burnt by this experience. I think no, I'd be surprised if any club is kind of planning for full stadiums for the full season. I think they've probably got a number of scenarios on the table, but are prepared for scenarios where they, they don't have 100% capacity. And so I think there's a lot of uncertainty. I think it's just going to take a lot of time to unfold. But at the end of the day, it's, it's really good news for, for Premier League clubs because, you know, I think the if you look at the macro picture of the media rise market, it wasn't even pre COVID, it wasn't looking incredibly pretty. I think now it's obviously looking a bit of a bit of a mess. So retaining the domestic rise deal has been a bit of a win for, for the Premier League. Agreed. I think flat growth is an absolute cause for celebration for for those clubs and um yeah, let's uh let's uh, see what happens as a result. Omar, great to chat as always, pal. Nice one. All right, we'll catch you next week then. Take care. Thanks for listening. You can follow me on Twitter, TikTok and Instagram at Football Law, read my blogs and listen to my previous podcasts via my website, danielg.com forward slash blogs. Please do subscribe to the Dundeal Football Podcast, like, share and tag me. If you like the content, if not my voice, you'll probably also like my book Dundeal, an insider's guide to football contracts, multi-million pound transfers and Premier League big business. A bit of a mouthful. It's available to buy in hard copy, digitally and via Audible. All links are in the podcast show notes. Lastly, the podcast is powered by 13, which is a fashion brand I've started. All proceeds go towards cancer charity research and particularly the stellar work done by John Krell, who has helped my mum through some difficult times over the last few years. You can take a look at the merch and hopefully buy a t-shirt hoodie, cap, or all three. Please do spread the word and go to 13shop.co.uk. That's 13shop.co.uk. Thanks for listening.